Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Luke chapter 7 this morning, let me give to you from the pastor's heart what I believe is missing in our church, our church in specific, and our church in general in the world today. We've been talking about several things over the last few weeks dealing with Christmas. We're coming out of our time together in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Before we finish that out, I wanted to go and give you what I believe will make all the difference in the world in your Christian walk and our church's effectiveness in this community and this world. And it's through this passage in Luke chapter 7. If you found that, if you would be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at Luke chapter 7, we'll start in verse 36, we'll read the first few verses and we'll try to make our way all the way to the end of that chapter as we study it together this morning. But we'll start in verse 36 of chapter 7 of Luke and it reads like this, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Father, this morning we have opened your word. We have read from that word. We have worshipped through our singing and our fellowship together. And now we ask this of you, that you wholeheartedly focus our attention upon you for the next few minutes, that you help us to objectively look at our life through the work of your Holy Spirit and decide whether we're the Pharisee or we're the woman. Decide whether the forgiveness you have given us warrants the love that we should show. So this morning, Father, make very little of me and very much of you. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. What an interesting story. The story starts and and actually comes right after Jesus has has done several uh, things through the book of Luke here. One of the things he raised the widow's... Uh, son from the dead and and he answers some questions about John he he praises John the Baptist for who he was and what he had done and and then he had moved from that to criticizing the particular generation that he happened to be walking in and and you see that back in starting in verse 31 and it starts with a question that says to what shall I like in the men of this generation and what are they like and it says that they are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another and they're saying we played the flute for you, and you did not dance, and you, we mourned to you, and you did not weep. And he goes on to say, For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you said, He is a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, Look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all of her children. So he comes off this section where he looks the Pharisees in the eyes and he says, John comes and does something different than what you're accustomed to. You call him a demon. I come and I do what you are accustomed to. I eat and I drink and you tell me that I'm a glutton. 
you tell me that I'm not who I say that I am, and you get on me about hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners. Immediately coming off of this, it says in verse 36 that we read that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. See, it was customary in that time that that you would invite those over that may have been teachers or rabbis or those that have been in the synagogues that have been teaching to the greatest of the Pharisees or the one who was the most prominent would invite him to his house for lunch. It's no different than today. A lot of times a pastor will be invited out or a guest speaker that comes will be taken to dinner. And, and it's a way of showing acceptance and it's a way of showing appreciation of this person. It's a way of spending some time at their, their feet and, and learning from them. And we see this Pharisee invites Jesus over. But don't be confused. He was not inviting Jesus over to show gratitude for what he had said or done. He was not inviting Jesus over to show acceptance in his message. He was not inviting Jesus over to sit at his feet and and learn from him. And how do we know that? Because it tells us in verse 39 that uh, when Jesus had spent some time there with them, that suddenly in his heart he says, this man must not be a prophet. See, this Pharisee was not a believer in Jesus Christ at all. So do not be fooled by the fact that he invited him over to dinner. Then why would he invite him over to eat? Keep in mind the goal of these Pharisees and Sadducees. They were trying to pin Jesus in the corner to get enough stuff on him they could have him murdered, crucified, get him out of the way. They were trying to gain knowledge about him and his sayings and and trying to find something that he would say that they could use to pin on him to take to the court of law to have him executed, to be put away, to be done away with. So when this Pharisee invited Jesus over, it wasn't the customary reason. See, he invited him over in hopes that he would be around him enough to gain some knowledge about him that could be used against him. And see, back in that day and time, whenever there was meals served, it was kind of interesting. They would invite several people into the meal, several guests into this meal, and and they would come to these tables and, and they would eat. Well, once they were in place, it's not like the dinners of today for those state heads and those, those folks that are so important. Today, when we invite someone over, there's normally guards put at the door and the doors are shut. And only those folks are allowed into the dinner. See, it was different in that day and time. In that day and time, they would invite over that special guest and there would only be a few that would be invited to the table, but the rest of the house would be opened. The windows would be opened, the doors would be opened, the rooms would be open, and you were allowed as one of the commoners, so to speak, to come in and stand against the wall or back in a corner and hear the conversation. For the ones who were invited to lunch or dinner, they were there to eat. For the others, they were there to listen. They were there to listen. And we see that happening here, for it says that this Pharisee invited Jesus over to eat with him. And when he went to the Pharisee's house, it says in verse 36 at the end, he sat down to eat. Now it's interesting, this word here that's transferred, uh, translated from the Greek to the English, this word eat, doesn't have the meaning of eat at all. And I think it's important that you understand this as we move forward. This particular word is actually could be better defined and, and is better defined as recline. It's kind of weird that we translated it eat in this particular case. The reason it was translated to eat probably in English is because that was the task that was taking place. But if you look at the use of that Greek word, it means to recline. You see, for this dinner was more than just a time that we gathered around the table to break bread. It was a time that we would eat. They would hang out and eat together, but then they would lounge or recline. Today, we come together maybe at each other's house, and we eat at a table, and we adjourn to the living room or the den. 
And we sit and we talk and we spend time together in a little uh, more leisurely atmosphere sitting around. They didn't leave the table for those discussions. They stayed. They also didn't sit at a table in a chair. They reclined on a bench. And this bench actually had one end was raised, one end was lower, and they would recline with the raised end towards the table, the declined end away from the table, and their head would be towards and their feet would be away from because obviously they walked everywhere they went. Feet were seen as dirty. The further away from the table they were, the better off. The taller you were, probably the more invitations Russell would have got to eat every week with someone as tall as he is. His feet would have been way away from the table. when he. But they reclined, if you can see this picture, leaning over on an elbow, eating, and they were stacked next to each other with their feet away from the table, pointing towards the corners of the room where the commoners would have stood. And so here they were at this meal. They were gathered there. They were probably talking. They were doing their own things. Other, other folks had come in and they had filled probably the recesses of the room. Maybe this meal was in the evening and it was a little dark around the sides of the room. And, and here they stood, one on top of the other. And it says there in verse 7, it says, And behold, remember I told you anytime you see this word behold, if you'll remember the angels announcing the birth of Jesus, if you'll remember Gabriel doing his thing, you always see this word behold when there's something important about to be said. And it says there, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. find that very interesting. The Pharisees classified sinners in that day and time, much like we do today. We're no different. We look at certain sins as worse than other sins. A person tells a little white lies, not nearly as bad as the guy who shot and killed somebody on the corner. The person who, who maybe stole something from the store because they were hungry is not near as bad as the guy that stole $50 million through his business from someone. We classify all the sins. Understand this, God doesn't classify sin. You either do or you don't. The smallest of sin is sin. The largest of sin is the same sin. The smallest of sin will send you to the same hell that murder will send you to. Sin is sin. And it says here, this woman who was a sinner. Well, I find it interesting that it mentions this woman was a sinner because in that day and time, the greatest classification for women sinners was prostitution. Whenever you would hear them talk about this, this woman who was a sinner, what they were really saying is this woman was a prostitute. She was a professional adulterer. She did this for money. This was, this was her occupation. This is what she chose to do. If you know anything about the Pharisees, you understand they don't want to be anywhere near those type of folks. Now the ones who had little small sins in their life, that was okay. But these big sins, the Pharisees didn't want to be anywhere close to them. How do we know that? I read that passage right ahead of where we started there in verse 34 for a reason. Because what they accused Jesus of was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You see, to the Pharisees, to even be in the presence of a person who robbed their countrymen by collecting tax from them was awful. Could you imagine how awful it was to be in the presence of a prostitute? But here she stood. And it tells us a little something about her. It says that she came into that place as when she knew that Jesus sat at the table. Apparently she knew this Jesus. Apparently this wasn't her first opportunity to see this Jesus. Apparently at some time she had come to recognize who he was. She had seen him somewhere and now she knew that he was sitting in the house of the Pharisee. She also knew she wasn't welcome. She also knew to step into that house was to face ridicule. She knew that going to that place was to be shunned. 
She knew that to go into that place was to, to be asked to leave, to be put down, to be pushed aside. She knew that to do what she desired to do would place her in a position that was going to be extremely uncomfortable for her. But it says there that she went in and she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Happens to be that in her trade, she probably had fragrant oil quite often with her, for she wanted to smell pretty. The alabaster flask tells us that that pretty oil, good-smelling oil that she had, was probably expensive because it was in this vial, this alabaster vial that had been made in such a way that that once it was sealed, it could only be opened by breaking the neck off of this bottle. And it was very interesting. matter of fact, a lot of the ladies wore those uh, as jewelry so that they would always have with them this fragrant oil if need be. And it says she'd come in with this oil, probably extremely expensive for their day and time. matter of fact, as I read and was trying to figure out if anyone had put a price on it in, in their uh, theological studies of it, I saw several stories, one which I found interesting. There was a, a guy at that particular time in history that allotted to his wife 400 gold coins a year for the purchase of this fragrant type oil. matter of fact, this oil could be sort of lined up with that myrrh that we see. Some people get this story and other stories that are similar to this in the Bible confused. For the Pharisee here, his name is Simon. You'll know there are other stories in the Bible about a woman who, who came to Jesus with a bottle of oil. And there was also a Simon who had put that uh, particular festivity on. But those are two separate events. One was in Judea, one was in Bethany. They're, they're totally separate. One was a Pharisee that put it together and uh, another was not. So anyhow, they... These two stories are similar in the fact, though, that there was this oil that was used to anoint someone. She brought this oil, and it was, it was what they used a lot of times at the burial of a body to show that it was precious. And it says she brought this bottle with her, and it says she stood at his feet behind him. Could you picture her in the room? We're told she brought the oil for a reason. I believe we're told she brought the oil because she desired to get to Jesus' head and anoint his head with the oil because that was the proper way to anoint a person to show their significance and importance. But due to the fact that the way they were at the table and due to the fact that she was who she was, she was with the commoners, she was up against the wall. Jesus was reclined at the table and can't you see her coming in the room and she's searching around the room and she sees Jesus. She sees Jesus on this end of the table so she works her way through the crowd against the wall trying her best to be quiet and she winds up back at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is reclined at this table in conversation. No one notices her. At least they don't tell us it does. It's almost as if she's just inconspicuous and she's standing there at the feet of Jesus. He's reclined at the table enjoying the conversation of the meal with those around. There's no telling what they were talking about. It doesn't tell us because it's not important to the story. What is important is that he was there and that she was there. They were in each other's presence. And it says, as she stood there at his feet, that she was doing something very interesting. She was weeping. She stood at the feet of a man that she probably hadn't known very long, who was reclined at a dinner table, having discussions with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. And as she stood at this man's feet, she began to weep. She began to cry. Why, you may ask yourself. It's in there for a reason. It's in there for a reason. And she 
did begin to weep for a reason, which we'll look at in a few minutes. But it's interesting what she did when she wept. For as she stood there at his feet, I'm sure she looked down and she realized, here's this man, Jesus. This important figure, they invited him to dinner and no one's even washed his feet. See, for the custom of the time was when you showed up at someone's house, when you showed up there, they would have a servant in place. That servant would take a bowl and a, and a rag and they would kneel at your feet and they would wash your feet before you went to the dinner table. It's much like, what do you tell the kids when they come out of the yard now? When they come out of the yard playing, they get ready to eat. What do you tell them? Go wash your hands. You know what I told them back then? Wash your hands and your feet. And it was because of the way that they did. It was the culture of the time. If you remember Jesus in the upper room the night before he was killed, he knelt at the feet of each of his disciples and he washed their feet. A humbling experience for him, but an uplifting experience for them. A show of gratitude, a show of appreciation for them, a show of their importance to him. Yet this Pharisee had invited this whole table full of folks to dinner and not washed a single person's feet, apparently, or at least not Jesus. So here stood this woman against the wall behind Jesus. She looks down and his feet have not been washed. Says she's weeping. Is she crying because his feet are not washed? Oh no. We'll talk about why she's crying in a minute. But what does she do? It says that as she weeped, those tears fell on his feet. So she was in very close proximity to him and she was crying. And it says that those tears fell on his feet. And it says she began to wash his feet with her tears. One writer said the overflow of joy in her heart poured out as love out of her eyeballs and those fell upon his feet. And she washed the dirt from his feet. But now she was in quite a quandary because she had the water from her eyes to wash his feet. Yet she was not girded with a towel to dry those feet. She stood there at the feet of Jesus with his feet all wet with her tears being washed. And it says this, it says, and wipe them with the hair of her head. If you know anything about the custom of that time, this was not good news. See, for a woman to take her hair down in public was to mean that she would be divorced from her husband. That's how serious they took it. To wear your hair down at that customary time meant you were a harlot. You always wore your hair up. That was their custom. Yet here she is in a place she knows she's not welcome, in a place she's not invited to. She's emotionally upset. She's crying over, over Jesus, and she reaches up and pulls her hair down, not worried about the ridicule of those around her. She takes that hair, and she begins to dry his feet, and dries his feet often. What an interesting picture we get of this woman. But it doesn't stop there. And it says, and she kissed his feet. For many of you, you have a feet phobia. If I was to tell you we were to have a foot washing and kissing, many of you would be sick that Sunday. We don't see that as something we like to do. When's the last time you walked up in the house? I see Vernon's over this last. I know he just walks right up in the house and just falls right in there. Miss Beverly says, let me kiss your feet. So come in the door. Just... It's not something we do on a normal basis now, is it? You know what? It wasn't even customary in their time unless it was the king. Unless it was somewhere really important. Yet she cried over his feet. She dried them off with the hair from her head. And she began to kiss his feet. She began to kiss his feet. What an interesting picture. But it says she doesn't stop there. It says that she goes from there and it says she anoints them, his feet, with the fragrant oil. 
she takes that bottle of oil she was probably wearing around her neck or carrying, and she snaps the neck of that oil. And when she snapped the neck of that oil, that fragrance from that oil filled that entire room. Everyone knew that that bottle had been opened. They knew that there was something different. They knew that she was about to do something that was a little out of the ordinary. See, she couldn't get to the head of Jesus. She had washed his feet, dried his feet, and kissed his feet. So she took that fragrant oil and now she anointed his feet. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture of this woman who so faced ridicule, who faced being sent out of a place, who possibly even faced death through this, kneeled at the feet of Jesus with tears flowing from her eyes. Her hair drying his feet. She can't let go of him. She's just kissing his feet. And suddenly she remembers the oil. And she anoints his feet. Not caring what anyone else in the room thought. Look at the response to what happened. It says in verse 39... Now when the Pharisee who invited him, the one in charge, the one that invited him, the one that did not wash his feet, the one that did not provide any provision, says whenever he saw this, he said to himself, now keep in mind, this is quiet. This is to be spoken within. He's already saying that this Jesus isn't who he thinks he is. He's already saying this Jesus isn't this prophet, this special person. So he says to himself here, he says, this man... If he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, a problem was arising. There was two reasons that this woman would have been at Jesus' feet. One reason is because he had been with her in the night. It's a possibility. Matter of fact, I think there's a book and a movie about that. We're saying that she was accustomed to him and he was familiar with her because he had partaken of her services. It's one theory. The other theory is that somewhere along the way she'd come to understand who he really was. And now we see Simon the Pharisee saying this Jesus isn't anybody important. He's letting this prostitute touch him. In one sense he's probably saying it could be that he knows her in a physical manner. In another sense, he could be saying he doesn't know anything at all. If he was a prophet, he didn't know she was a prostitute. So he's either saying that they had been intimate together or saying that Jesus didn't really know anybody, anything or anybody was ignorant to who she was. So you see the picture. You see the picture of this meal. You see what's set up here. Let's move to verses we haven't read yet. Verse 40. It says there that, And Jesus answered and said to him, Now I don't remember Simon asking a question, do you? So Simon had said, If this man knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And then it turns around and says, Jesus answers. You think Simon got his answer about whether or not Jesus knew anything at that moment? (laughs) You see, because Jesus knew what went through the head of this Pharisee. Not only did he know who that woman was, 
But he knew what this Pharisee was thinking. How do we know that? Because he says this to him. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, could you imagine inviting me over for lunch and we're hanging out there and already you've made a boo-boo and you haven't had supper ready and maybe you've extended no courtesy and we're sitting around the table and suddenly I just look over there and I say, Miss Kay, I got something I want to say to you. You'd probably draw back just a second and say, whew, is he getting ready to ask me to do something at the church? Is he getting ready to tell me I'm doing something wrong? Is he getting ready to say that he didn't like what I cooked? A whole host of things would run through your head. It was no different for Simon. Because he had just thought to himself, this man's letting a prostitute touch him. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, I've got something I want to say to you. And he responds this way, teacher. Now he had just said this man. He had just invited over this guy that he wanted to prove was not who he was. And now he looks at him and says, teacher, say it. And I'm sure he didn't say it in a nice way. He probably went, teacher, go ahead, say it. Whatever it is, spit it out. So Jesus tells this parable. And it's interesting that the story has a parable stuck in the middle. The parable is very simple. We're not going to spend much time explaining the parable because it explains itself. The parable starts there in verse 41 and it says, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. So see the picture he's setting up. There's one creditor. There's two people that owe him money. It says, One owed 500 denarii. Now denarii was a one day's wage, roughly. So one of the guys that owed the creditor owed a year and a half worth of income. Get the picture? It says the other owed 50. The guy on the other side, a month and a half. So we have one guy that owes a year and a half, one guy that owes a month and a half. And he's standing before this creditor. He says, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? So you see the picture? Instead of Simon getting Jesus back against the wall, (laughs) suddenly Jesus has Simon's back against the wall. Because he asked him a question, a parable that has a very obvious answer. If it wasn't written there, you would know the answer. Who would love the creditor the most? The guy that owed a year and a half and was forgiven. The one who owed the most Love the most. How do we know that? He's, Simon answered in 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one with whom he forgave more. Find it interesting that he said suppose. I think Simon realized he had met his match. He wasn't sure. He says the answer is kind of obvious. The answer is so obvious I'm afraid to give the obvious answer because I'm afraid Jesus is about to embarrass me because the obvious answer is probably not the right answer. Can't you see it running through his head? You ever been there? I know you have. If you come on Wednesday night, I'll ask questions sometimes, and y'all look at each other like, I'm not going to answer that because that's so obvious it's got to be wrong. And that's what Simon was doing. Yet he had to answer. So he said, I suppose the one that was whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Nice, simple story. How does it fit? How does it fit with this woman? Fortunately, Jesus goes on to explain. He says in verse 44, He turned towards the woman, yet he said to Simon, (laughs) He says, Do you see this woman? Again, a rhetorical question. How do we know? 
Because Simon had already obviously seen the woman touching Jesus in his head. He'd already said to himself, why is he letting him do that? Jesus knew what he was thinking. So Jesus looks at him and said, see this woman? I imagine Simon's blood started running a little cold because now he was putting two and two together. This man that I just called a teacher must know what I'm thinking. Have you ever thought something hoping nobody would figure out you just thought it? It just ran through some of your head while I was preaching. I'm not Jesus. I don't know what you were thinking. Only God can forgive. <laughs> but he get, I'm sure his blood ran cold. He says to him, do you see this woman? And he says, I entered your house. At your request, Simon, I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. So he points out to Simon, there was no hospitality given to me. I apparently am nobody to you. I'm just one of the lowly. You didn't even bother to provide water for my feet. Then in comparison, he says, But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. See this comparison he's starting to set up? Simon, here's you, the religious leader, the one who knows everything about God and is not scared to tell everybody you know everything, the one who has all the answers to all the questions, yet I come in and you don't even show the common courtesy of washing my feet, yet here is this prostitute, and she has cried all over my feet and dried them with her hair. He goes on to 45, he says, you gave me no kiss. What does he mean? See, the custom of the day, when a person came in that you loved, he would kiss them on each cheek. They still do it in the East now. It's like our handshake. It's like our bear hug. It shows that you love someone, you care for them, you have affection for them. So washing their feet shows respect. The kiss shows that you have affection for them and they're welcome. But he says, you gave me no kiss, this Pharisee. He says, but this prostitute... I can't get her to stop kissing my feet. The words that are used there is this emphatic word saying she's grasped tightly upon my feet, kissing them over and over and over and over. Not a one-time gesture at the door to show acceptance, but a continual gesture to show acceptance, importance, and love to him. And he says she's kissed my feet since the time that I came in. Then he goes on to 46 says, Pharisee, you did not anoint my head with oil. It was customs of that time as you traveled, your hair got very dry because of the dust in the area. And to make a person feel comfortable and clean, they'd not only wash their feet and not only welcome them with a kiss, but they'd anoint their hair with this oil. Ladies, you would love it because then you never had static, you never had that problem. It made their, gave them an opportunity to freshen up, like we say now. You can use the restroom to freshen up when a person's traveled for a long ways. They often, when they get to the home, that's what they want to do. Go in and put themselves back together after being in the car. And that was sort of the idea, that they would anoint their head with this oil. And he says to this Pharisee, I, I've showed up, you had not washed my feet, you, you, you haven't kissed me on the cheek. You didn't even put oil on my hair says, but this woman, this prostitute, has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. It was two different kinds of oil. He said to the Pharisee, you didn't take common oil and put on my hair, but she took the most expensive myrrh, the ointment, the, the beautiful smelling, the precious oil, and poured it all over my feet. He says in verse 30, 47, Therefore, Simon, I say to you, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Everything that's said before that 
was setting up this statement. He's saying, because of the way you treated me, because of your heart, the thoughts that are running through your head, because of what you're trying to do to me, he says, therefore, Simon, let me say this to you. Her sins, which are many, he doesn't say she's committed one little sin. Her sins, which are many. Can anybody identify? Can you identify with that statement? I can. He says, your her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. It's interesting, this word forgiven. The root word of that word forgiven in the Greek is the same word we use for grace. The same word there in Greek, the root word of it, we translate grace. See, for a person to be forgiven of a debt doesn't make the debt disappear. Understand that, church. Your sin did not disappear because Jesus died on a cross. When God decided to forgive you of your sin, your sin didn't go away. It still had to be paid for. See, what we forget is to forgive a debt means the person that forgave the debt said, take it off of their account and put it on mine. What that debtor had done is told the guy that owed a year and a half worth of wages. He says, you don't owe me, I'll pay the bill because the bill still must be paid. He told the guy who only had a month and a half worth of debt, he says, I'll take yours too, I'll pay it. It still has to be paid. God, when he looked down through eternity and looked at you and said, the, the blood of my precious son will wash away your sin, is saying, I'll take your sin and I'll pay for it. Don't you worry about it. Your sin is taken care of. It doesn't make your sin go away. A debt is a debt and has to be paid. It's no different. If God were to say the debt disappeared without being paid, he'd no longer be God. See, because he said that there is a wage for sin. And what is that wage? Death. Not disappearance. Death. And he says here to him, he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And he makes this statement, for she loved much. Some have tried to make a case that it was the show of her love that forgave her sins. That's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek it says, because of the magnitude of the forgiveness of her sins, she loved a whole bunch. Don't ever think that your display of affection for God or your jumping up and down or your singing or your coming to church or any of those things is going to change your destiny. It won't. There's not a thing that you can do to change hell being in your future. Nothing. There's not enough love. There's not enough singing. There's not enough Sunday services. There's not enough things that can be done around here that will keep you from hell. There's only one thing that will keep you from hell. God looking down and saying, you owe the debt that should send you to hell, but I'm willing to pay it, and I did it through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. She loved much because she was forgiven much. He goes on to say, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. I think what Jesus is telling us, church, there's a way to tell how grateful you are for your forgiveness. There's a way to outwardly see if you've even been forgiven. There's a way to outwardly understand. There's a way for me to see just how big you think your sins were before Jesus showed up. 
And it's what that woman did. No matter those that were around her, she was going to worship her Savior. Didn't matter if she was in a church house or she was in a Pharisee's house that was surrounding Jesus with sinners and lost folks. She was going to worship her God. She was going to fall at the feet of the one who had forgiven those many, many sins in her life. The multitude of times she'd been with men that were not her husband. The times that she had cheated and stealed. The times that she had done all those things in her life that she was so ashamed for. And here lay the man that would forgive all those sins. You know what's missing in our church. We forget how big a sinner we were. Before Jesus showed up. See, because the magnitude of your worship is a direct reflection of the magnitude of your forgiveness. To sit in a pew and enjoy one hour a week in a place we call church and call that worship shows me that you fit in the latter category. He who has little forgiveness shows little love. It's time our church remembers what Christ did. See, without Jesus, there would be no future. There would be no hope. Your destiny would be a place called hell. And he says, I don't care if you're the largest of murderers or the smallest of liars. The blood that flowed from my body will wash away that sin. Here stood this woman. In the presence of those who already hated her. Yet she let the love of Jesus flow out of her eyes onto his feet, pulled down her hair, not worrying about being ridiculed, and wiped his feet, took the most precious thing she owned and poured it on his feet. And she grasped a hold of him and kissed his feet and loved on him. Why? Because she'd been forgiven of her sins. When's the last time your eyes poured feet on your Savior, tears on your Savior's feet when's the last time you could have been ridiculed for taking down your hair and wiping them dry when's the last time you fell at the feet of your Savior and you didn't want to leave when's the last time you took the most precious thing you have which is your life and you poured it out on your Jesus and said here it is may it bless you You see, this woman showed great worship because she was greatly loved through the forgiveness of her sins. Jesus said there, your sins are forgiven. Says those who sat at the table with him begin to say to themselves, who is this even who forgives sins? You want the world to see your Jesus? Worship him. Don't hide it in a closet. Don't do it in the four corners of this building. You know, many of us are more afraid to worship here in front of our peers than she was in front of all those who ridiculed her. But he's saying here that because of what she did, others started wanting to know this Jesus. You want to share the gospel? Worship. Bow at the feet of your Savior. Don't worry about the ridicule and humiliation. Worship. You see, and he looks at her there in verse 50. Finally, he turns to that woman and he says to her, Your faith has saved you. Go 
in peace. Many of us are seeking for peace in our life. We're seeking for comfort in our life. We're seeking for a future that we feel secure in. Yet you have Jesus, you tell me. I'm saved. I have this Jesus. How could she go in peace? She could go in peace understanding that she had been saved by the Prince of Peace. And understanding that her worship of that Prince of Peace was not just an obligation. It was something that came out of her heart because she realized the magnitude of her forgiveness. You know what's missing in our church? Let's not even take it to others. Let's leave it right here in these four walls. When's the last time you've seen this altar wet with the tears? Of those who've been forgiven of their sins. That have had their destiny changed from all eternity in a place called hell to the very feet of their Savior, Jesus, in a place called heaven. When's the last time that the altar was standing room only? When's the last time that nobody wanted to go home because they were in the presence of their Jesus? When's the last time you've worshipped your Jesus? May today be that day. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.